Hello, everyone. Breadcode here. Cantier joins him. And uh, we've got another podcast for you. Today, we're going to be attacking the subject of game critique and specifically a different way to approach it from normal. Yeah, so this uh, topic grew out of a discussion that I had with one of our artists about how video game critique is primarily done as a consumer review process. It's driven from the desire and the goal to provide the consumer with information that they can use to evaluate whether or not they might be interested in getting a game. That's where you get things like all the game ratings and, uh, you know, graphics got 7 out of 10 or whatever. And you, you have things like that. And a lot of that process is is for consumers, but it is a very specific type of critique. And I feel that there is another type of critique that is very interesting, and that's more of an artistic critique. Critiquing games specifically as art. Yeah, and when we say critiquing games as art, you want to think of it like when you're looking at a piece of art, like, say, a Van Gogh or something like that. Yeah, like you're going around the museum and you see a painting on the wall. And there is a style or a technique to kind of critiquing that in a way that is very different from a consumer-oriented process. And the result of that is very different in terms of what you're getting out of the critique. So there's different ways to critique things. And again, the consumer-oriented critique is what we so often see for video games, but we also see it commonly for things like movies. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be trying to provide you some tools of what the reviewer thinks in terms of, is this game worth your money or not? Uh, art critique is not looking for that. It's not trying to ask, is this thing worth your money? It's more asking, what does this thing say? How well does it say it? That sort of thing. Yeah, so some of the aspects we're going to be going over in today's talk, evaluating is it good or bad art, and what does that actually mean? Does the piece achieve its intent, and what does that mean for the creator of the piece? Yeah. Separating your opinion from the facts of the piece, and also not being ashamed of, do I like this art? Why do I like this art? And also originality versus technical execution and, uh, you know, things that are kind of messy and unique, but uh, they're groundbreaking because of the circumstances in which they were released. Yeah, really one of the big things uh, that I think is important in this sort of process is that it's looking to opinion and understanding opinion and the origins of it and separating that from fact. What I mean by that is so often people's opinions are presented as a fact and there's not room for sharing of opinion and evaluating each other's opinions. There are facts about any piece of art. For example, Van Gogh liked to use a lot of paint with very thick brush strokes sort of thing. Yeah, He had a particular style. You can recognize it. You can uh, evaluate it in terms of how did he do it and that sort of thing. And then you can ask a very important question. Do I like that? And it could be yes or no. And there's no right or wrong answer to that. That's not a quiz question or a trivia question or anything like that. It's a personal feeling. There's room for everybody's opinions. But there's it's important to not foist somebody's opinion on somebody else. But it's also very enlightening to understand why somebody has the opinion that they have on something. It can help foster bonds between people. It can help you understand somebody. And it can help somebody to understand themselves when they go through the process of explaining why they like something. 
let's go ahead and get right in on this. Sounds good. The uh, first part that we're going to be looking at is that concept of what makes good or bad art. It's a huge question because there are a lot of, I guess you could call it misnomers when you're thinking about, okay, well, what makes something good? What makes it bad? It's an interesting, and as a slight aside here, good and bad are extremely overloaded terms mm-hmm. because they're used as a scale for morality. Good and bad are good versus evil is the way you often hear it. They're used as a scale for quality, like how well done something is. So if it's of good quality, it's very well done. Yeah. If it's of bad quality or poor quality, it's not very well done. And that sort of set of differences gets further convoluted by the additional scale of how much do I personally like this thing? Yeah. Thinking about it now, just hearing that description makes me want to say like it might be better to think of it as strong or weak, possibly. I'm not sure. Maybe so. But I think it's important to understand what scale you're talking about at any given time. When you're evaluating art, if you're trying to evaluate how much you like it, that's an opinion. Yes. If you're trying to evaluate quality, that's not. That's a fact. Yeah. And those two things don't have to necessarily align. So in this discussion of what makes art good or bad, to my mind, it has to do with how much impact it has on somebody, how much it affects them, how much it gets them thinking, that sort of thing. And now this is going to be very subjective, and it's going to depend upon a lot of different factors, like what was your mood when you saw it? Mm -hmm. Uh, How much does it personally speak to you? So in any of these sort of opinion-based things, you can only speak to what the aggregate is. Uh, And so if the majority of people feel moved by a piece, then it is what I would consider good art. It is art that is effectively influencing, affecting, impacting people. And I'd consider bad art art that everybody just kind of shrugs their shoulders and moves on, right? Yeah, it's that idea of when you and many other people looked at the piece, did they get a feeling? It doesn't have to be the same feeling, mind you, but it made you think, it made you do something. You had either an emotional response or a cerebral response. You had some sort of response to it, but if there was no response, if it just kind of fell flat, you just kind of looked at it and went, eh, it's a piece that's a little bit closer to the concept of a bad piece. Yeah. One of my favorite examples of this sort of concept is a display that's in the Pompidou Center in Paris, France. It is three white canvases lined up in a row. And it's interesting because I feel like of all of the different pieces of art that I have seen in the Pompidou Center, that is the one about which I have spoken the most. Uh, Usually in the context of, can you believe they put up three blank canvases on their wall as a display of art? But I think that they did it with good reason. It gets us thinking, what does it mean for something to be art? What does it require? And I think it's actually a piece of good art because it prompts conversation. It prompts people to to think and talk and all of that sort of thing. So to my mind, it ends up being a good piece of art despite its bland appearance because of the impact it has. Well, yeah, because from a certain standpoint, it's not technically impressive. No, Um, not at all. The thing that makes it art is the fact that it's in the Pompidou Center. Like, the art of that piece is the circumstances in which it is presented. Yeah, it is really the presentation, you're right. And that's one of the interesting things, and that's one of the things to really keep in mind, is that a piece of art doesn't necessarily have to be technically superior. Now, something with a lot of technicality in it, that is very impressive, and that's important to note. But there are many things that speak to people that are extremely simple. 
uh, sometimes a good artist is somebody who can recognize and capitalize on that concept of the one note that you hit that gives you all of the feels. Yeah. It should also be mentioned that this sort of good-bad thing is a scale. It's not binary. Mm -hmm. So you can say how much it moves people in general, like how how impactful. And, And when I say move, I don't necessarily mean powerful emotional reactions. I just mean that it did something to them. It didn't leave them with no change to their self. Yeah, to their mental or emotional state. Yeah. There's also an additional sort of side concept here. I would kind of describe it as how successful the piece of art is. This is the idea that the person who made the art, we call them artists, I suppose, decided to make it with some sort of intention. Yeah. It's the idea that when you go to make a piece of art, ideally, I'm not going to say that everyone does this, but ideally, you have something in mind, something you want to convey, something you want to do. Uh, some aspect. It could be that you want to display a certain method of technique or you want to embody sadness or some other emotion or you want to make a statement on some sort of concept. It should be noted that you may not be consciously aware of doing this, but it will often happen subconsciously. This is also true. And when we talk about the success of an artist with a piece, if they set out to do something with the piece, how close did they come to actually doing that thing? Yeah, so an idea to think of this with is if somebody makes a piece that they intend to be really scary and to kind of evoke fear, and there's some aspect of it that a lot of people just find really comical, then it might still be a good piece. People might have a lot of impact with it. It might display like the ridiculousness of something or another, but it didn't succeed in achieving what the artist was trying to do with it. Yeah, and... One of the reasons why this kind of evaluation can have some credence is that this, in some respects, it speaks to a, a portion of the artist's ability. And I'm not going to say that it straight up defines whether you're good or bad at this sort of thing. But uh, it does speak to things like when you hear that this artist is going to do another thing, is it something to get excited about? And that sort of deal. Yeah, sort of the concept of if you heard George Lucas was making another Star Wars film, how excited would you be given what happened with the prequel trilogy? Yeah, or, you know, you hear uh, John Williams is going to do another score for a film. Yeah, exactly. Like, well, I don't know if the film's going to be any good, but the soundtrack will be. So the other thing that's really useful about doing this evaluation is it helps you understand people, which is important as an artist if you are intentionally trying to send a message. Understanding what sort of message a piece of art is giving can be very helpful, and doing this for your own pieces of trying to judge your own success at conveying your message can be very helpful if you're wanting to actually convey your message and you notice you're not succeeding. Why is the good thing to try to evaluate here? Most definitely. Moving on from that concept... We've got the idea of the opinion, the straight-up opinion. Do I like this? Do I not like this? Yeah. This is fairly straightforward, and only you can answer it. Everybody has their own opinions on whether or not they like something. What's unfortunate is that peer pressure will often cause people to express a contrary opinion to what they actually feel. It's kind of an independent evaluation also. It doesn't have to be linked to how well done something is. I know I've definitely, for example, with a movie, seen a movie that I'm like, that was a really well done movie. I didn't like it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's fine also if other people really like it. So as kind of a, uh, a sort of personal example here, I'll get into a few more details in a moment, but... I happen to like the movie Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice, Uh which 
is, I know, not sort of the popular opinion. A lot of people are very negative on the movie. I think they have good reason to be. But there's aspects of it that I really like. And this kind of brings us to sort of the next thing that's very helpful to do, kind of a corollary, kind of a, a point to A, as it were, mm-hmm. which is evaluating why you like or dislike a piece of art. It's very useful to think about because it can help you evaluate more about who you are, but also help you identify aspects that you really like that will allow you to be able to find more art that you like. So the reason why I like Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice is because it does a lot of interesting things technically. It has a lot of interesting scenes, creates a lot of interesting moods, a lot of different visual feels that are very interesting on a technique level. I think that it fails utterly uh, when it comes to providing an emotional through line. But that failure, like it matters, but it doesn't keep me from liking the film it's a movie that I kind of want to rewatch at some point because I want to see what's it doing. And that's the sort of thing that I really like, analyzing those sorts of details that sort of feel creating moments. If you've listened to the Inspiration or Creativity podcast that we did a while back, this kind of feeds into that same concept. Yeah, speaking on uh, films that I enjoyed and a lot of people didn't much care for, uh, I think to Amazing Spider-Man 2, which, granted, I entered into it with a very different goal than I think a lot of people did, because I I went in expecting kind of a popcorn flick, and uh, I wanted to see Spider-Man do what Spider-Man does, and, well, Spider-Man did what Spider-Man does, and so I was placated. Although, uh, from that same standpoint, I realized that from a technical standpoint, certainly from storytelling and also cuts and general things like emotional storylines and characterization, it failed in so many ways but I can't deny that I left the film and I was like ah I enjoyed that but I think a part of it was that when I entered the film I had heard Hans Zimmer's score for it beforehand and it's amazing by the way um, my enemy the the suite for Electro even if Electro himself the character didn't quite work as well as we would have liked the suite embodies everything that they really wanted to seek in there so it was nice to see that in the film yeah, I know music is a big deal for you, so it makes sense that that would be very impactful. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that's really useful about trying to evaluate what you like or dislike about a piece of art or why you like and dislike those specific elements, and again, breaking everything down into pieces can be very, very useful here, just to be able to evaluate individual pieces and whether or not you like them and, and that sort of thing. And we'll get into that more in a moment, but... Understanding this is very useful for when you're trying to create your own art also. Mm -hmm. So you can understand what sort of things impact you and why can be very useful as a way of making tools to be able to do a similar sort of thing. Yeah, not only that, but also to cover your bases when you're making something and you know that there's a part that needs to be strong, but you know that you yourself are not affected by these things as strongly. And so knowing when you need to get somebody in there that is affected by these things and so will know how to make it strong. Yeah. Uh, And then we kind of have that third part. That third piece, yeah. Yeah, sort of the messy and unique part. There's a lot of things that I was trying to capture here, and I didn't have a a good way when I was thinking about this beforehand of kind of separating out stuff. So there's a couple of broad strokes. One, I think that technique and technical expertise is an important thing to be able to evaluate. So, you know, how well done was it? Yeah. Right? That's very useful, being able to evaluate that quality. But there's also this aspect of originality. 
Uh, and I think something that's very interesting is that originality and technical execution tend to be contrasting things. Mm. When you're being very original, you don't have very much practice. Yeah. And it's the practice that's required to achieve technical expertise. Mm-hmm. So the more you do something, the more practice experience you get at it, the better you can execute on it but the less original you are. Indeed. It's a hard bit of things because the more you try and do something that is not done, the more in, we'll say, unexplored territory you get to. And that means you have much more of a likelihood to quote-unquote underperform. And certainly for future generations that look back at your thing that you did at that time, they will look and say, wow, that was actually not all that good now that we're at this point. But the important thing to realize about that piece, I guess we'll call it that piece of innovation, is that it happened before we had that foreknowledge. And that's what makes it good. Yeah, it's the cliche setters that form the basis of what later become cliches. They often, if you go back and look at them, feel like nothing but a giant cliche. Yeah. But that's because they were the first one to do it, so they have the barest essence of it, Mm -hmm. um, the simplest form, and it's been refined and polished since and then built upon another thing, so it's become something greater than that first piece could ever hope to be, but somebody needed to do it first. Yeah, and this isn't to say that all old things will eventually become just, you know, archaic or unable to affect There are some things that, this is where the term comes from, have that timeless quality. For sure. Where it's just, they did a thing, and it doesn't matter when you're looking at it, it's still amazing. Yeah. Uh, And kind of a, a last point is that there's a lot of tools that we have for evaluating older media. So we can do things like talk about brush strokes, palette choices, framing composition, that sort of stuff for paintings, uh, as just one example. These are useful tools for examining the facts of something and examining what's being done, what the artist did to try to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish. So you can say, look at the palette choices that they chose for trying to generate a specific mood, as, as an example. However, I kind of feel like a lot of the tools necessary for doing this for video games have not been very well developed. Uh, This is in part because video games are very new, and it's also in part because video games have been very consumer-focused. Extremely so. More so than, I'd say, any other art form, video games have been in the commercial realm. Like, going back to the very beginning of these things, like in the Atari days and stuff, why did you make a game? It wasn't necessarily because you wanted to express something. Yes, you did want to express something, but you also wanted to sell it. If we go back to like Renaissance days of the arts, making a piece was as much about selling it as it was just making it. Well, I would say commercial artists were were not the primary swath of artists at the time. Yeah, well, artists often did a lot of passion pieces. And that's one of the things is that we have had so much practice evaluating things like paintings as art. Um, they're up in museums, you know, you're not buying them typically. And so you go into the museum and you look at them and you evaluate them. Uh, as a piece of art. And the critic scene has been built up around that sort of process of evaluating a painting, for example, as a piece of art. Mm -hmm. But video game critique has been primarily focused on the consumer aspect because video games have been primarily created for consumer market. And that's the thing that's interesting in some ways over the past several years with how indie games have grown up and that sort of thing is we get more games that are art, like explicitly created to be art. And 
our consumer-oriented review techniques fall short of evaluating these because they're not designed to evaluate them as art. They're designed to evaluate them as a consumer product. And so I think developing a set of tools to be able to evaluate a game as a piece of art is very, very useful. Um, something that I can recommend to this end is our podcast on the composite experience, which is number 20. Yeah, it's a nice number. Yeah, nice, nice convenient number. I feel like that framework that we express there is very useful for at least being a basis to begin this evaluation process because it allows you to be able to break things down into components that you can analyze. With that, I'll also add just learning to study games as art is very useful for a game maker because it helps them to learn what others have done, what techniques they've employed, so you can get some ideas for what you might want to employ to achieve the effects that you want to achieve. Most definitely. Understanding the history of games, not only from the standpoint of, oh, this was made, and so they did this, and this was kind of successful, people liked this game, Mario is a thing, but understanding it more from the standpoint of when Mario was made, what were they really trying to do there? Approaching it from the standpoint of why did they choose the color palette that they chose? Why was it specifically Save the Princess? What does superimposing the plot of Save the Princess over jump on top of enemies do to things? Or going to a more complex thing in the current now, evaluating a game like Dark Souls and saying, was the initial intention? Did they achieve that? How are they achieving that with tone and mechanical identity and things like that? Yeah, it's actually interesting just talking about that Save the Princess thing. You need to look at things in context. Back in the NES days, you did not have a lot of room to tell a story. Exactly. And Save the Princess is a really easy story to tell without much space. Yep, three words. Save the Princess, that's your story. Yep. My final sort of thing here is that I would really like to see more in-depth analysis of games that treats them as art and not just consumer product. I do think consumer reviews absolutely have a place. They're extremely valuable. I would like for people to get away from stating their opinions as fact. That discludes other people's opinions when that is done. And the problem that I have with this is it's invalidating others' experiences. And it doesn't further discussion. It doesn't further learning. And it creates a hostile environment for discussion, thought, analysis, and learning. It also creates a hostile environment for developers, too. It does. I think that about covers um, our talk on game critique and just approaching it from the standpoint of evaluating fact and opinion and knowing the difference between the two and utilizing an understanding of the facts and also the circumstances of the piece as well as the artist's intention and many other elements to inform on what it's going on. In other words... Write long papers, folks. <laughs> Dissertations on games. Yes. Next week, we are going to begin talking about the process of making games. One of the things that I've realized is there's a lot of lay consumers out there who don't really know what the inside process looks like. I think it'll be an interesting discussion, and hopefully it will help some people understand why things are done the way that they are. With that, this is Cientier signing off. And this is Redco signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyos.